from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to New Dawn, the podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Welcome to the New Dawn podcast. I'm Michael Dawson, my co-host for the day. Welcome back, Charisse Bernstelli. And I'd like to welcome to our show, Takia Harper Shipman. It's the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Assistant Professor of African Studies at Davidson College. She is author of Rethinking Ownership of Development in Africa and has published in Third World Quarterly, the Journal of Asian and African Studies, and Philosophy and Global Affairs. Her current book project examines the political economy of reproduction and race in the U.S., Senegal, and Ghana. And most of our discussion today will be focused on thinking about how scholarship in Africa helps us better understand the intersection between race and capitalism. So Kia and Charisse, it's, it's wonderful to have you, have you here. This conversation is going to be extraordinary. I do believe I'm going to try to mostly keep silent and, and learn from both of you. Well, let's start with Takia. Can you share with, with the audience your intellectual and scholarly background? What brought you to the work you're interested in? Thank you for that. Also, let me say, since we can't see me, I wore my Black Scholars Matters shirt. So I'm just going to put that out there. And thinking about the, the what brought me to this work, it really started with the experience I had doing Peace Corps in undergrad, believe it or not. So I did Peace Corps in Burkina Faso for two years, and I was a community health development worker. And, you know, I had gone into Peace Corps with the same kind of lofty ideals that I think a lot of undergrads go into Peace Corps with, right? This uncritical reflection of development and helping people in another country, et cetera. And when I got to Burkina Faso, I was just completely astounded by how problematic and how neo-colonial in a lot of respects the Peace Corps was, but more profoundly the industry of development. And I think one of the times when this really kind of came to the fore was, so if I can talk a little bit about the that experience. So there was it's there was this con- this product called plumping up, right? And it's this enriched peanut butter, if you will, that comes from the UN's food program. And they distribute this all across the global south for malnourished children. And so I was working at the health clinic and I noticed there's all these boxes of pumping nut. And when the pumping nut is gone, you know, then there's a, a shortage and, you know, people would say we, we have to wait for another supply to come in. Meanwhile, you know, there were significant amounts of children, especially in the more rural parts of the village that were, you know, moderately to severely malnourished. And I worked with some of the healthcare providers to think about, well, what are the foods and resources that exist in the community already to, that could stave off malnutrition, right? Since the pumping net was externally produced. And so we put together this program that was very much driven by the health workers at the clinic, where they identified a group of like 14 women and their children, and over a series of weeks, engaged them in how to use locally produced 
resources, locally produced foods to enrich their children's food. And, you know, over time, you know, the their, their weight started to change, et cetera. But it was in that moment that I started to have these really intense feelings about how problematic development was, right? And how problematic it was to see such a reliance on externally produced food and externally produced commodities, even at the level of like remote villages, when there were so many resources and so much that already existed. And it this is also when I came to find out about Thomas Sankara, right? And one of the quotes that Sankara said, that Sankara says that really resonated with this moment was how, you know, people often thought about imperialism as this kind of outside force, right? This very distant and outside force. And Sankara said, if you want to see imperialism, all you have to do is look at your plate, right? And he said, the rice you're eating, right? This Never mind the fact that Burkina Faso produces some of the best quality rice out of any other region, that you're still importing rice from other countries around the world, right? Instead of actually consuming what you have domestically. And so it was in those moments and in those experiences and doing Peace Corps that I came to understand that how the question of development and the role of Peace Corps, right, as a form of soft power, which Sergeant Striver created in, in consultation with, with Kennedy, right, was a means of placating and, and distributing this kind of soft power in the wake of like the Cold War. And so, so all of these things really informed the questions that I started my PhD program with, right, which was how do we come to think about development as outside of this industry, right, outside of these kind of externally produced notions of progress and this dependent relationship with European and Western countries, especially in the context of, of Africa. So that's a long way of answering that, but hopefully it gets to the core of what you're asking. I think that that is a, a wonderful segue into, into the next question. Takia, in your first book called Rethinking Ownership of Development in Africa, which, by the way, was published with Routledge in 2020, everybody go out and buy it, you examine how both discourses and policies around this the so-called ownership or owning of development actually serve to reproduce the domination of multilateral institutions like the International Monetary Fund, like the World Bank, right? While mar marginalizing local actors. And then you particularly focus on this dynamic in Kenya and Burkina Faso. So what does your study actually illuminate about the legacies of colonialism and neocolonialism in these relationships of development, about the racialized logics of developmentalism, and also about the failures of neoliberalism? If I can give a little background on this, on how I kind of went into the field work to, to, to start to answer this question. So when I started working on the project, I was just reading in the literature about this concept called ownership, right? Like it was a part of the, the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness. It was being promoted by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It was just all over the international development discourse as this new kind of framework and means of engaging actors that would 
essentially move African countries beyond the problems of the 1990s, right, past the limitations of their own abilities to effectively adopt structural adjustment policies. And so I was just reading in the literature and I thought, well, clearly this is this is neo-colonial, right? Clearly, if once I go to the field and once I go to Kenya, and because I started the project doing fieldwork in Kenya, like people are going to say this to me, right? That, oh, we understand this is, you know, an extension of European and Western domination. And that actually wasn't what happened. So when I when I got to Kenya, I was talking to different government officials in the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education, and the Treasury, along with talking to donors and NGOs. But I was really shocked when I was talking to government officials and they were telling me, well, of course Kenya owns its own development, right? Donors listen to us. Donors, We tell donors what to do. And now that we have this ownership paradigm, you know, they have to listen to us. I was floored, right? And I think this is why I say, this is why I do field work. Um, but I was floored, and I was like, "That doesn't make that doesn't make any sense." A significant amount of the a, a significant amount of the the funding that goes to the education sector and that goes to the health sector come from donors. I, there are documentations on how donors have like chided the Kenyan government because of its inability to properly disperse funds or the way in which it procures different parts of different different parts of its of development right so i started to question less you know is ownership neo colonial and more so well why do the kenyan official why do they believe that they do in fact own development why have they actually shifted their thinking around this and that's what led me to to understand how important it was to interrogate the discursive elements of, of, of international development, right? Because it's not, I think a lot of people often just focus on the financial aid, right? The financial part of it. And then and what I talk about in the book, though, is the epistemic part of it, right? This kind of epistemic aid. And that very much framed how Kenyan, the Kenyan government was talking about the fact that it produced these policies in consultation with donors, right? So it was the fact that slightly different from before, where donors were just kind of producing the documents, especially structural adjustment policies. And this is where we have what was called the Washington Consensus, right? Which was the, the notion that these particular policies were created on 14th Street in Washington, D.C., which is where the IMF and the World Bank headquarter, are headquartered, right? Well, now what came with ownership was that it, we could produce these same policies on the continent, but make government officials feel like they have, they're a part of this process as well. Never mind that it's the, it produces the same type of political imbalances. Never mind the ways in which it prescribes a particular notion of civil society that must conform with donor goals and must conform with this type of neoliberal state. I became more interested in how this all this links back to some of what Cabral talks about, right? And some and also some of what Nkrumah talked about when they were questioning the structures of dependence that would remain after the formal colonial process ends, right? And so when we think about how 
Nkrumah describes neocolonialism, where he's talking about it as the state having the outward trappings of political independence, right, or international sovereignty, but the economic power, right, and thus the policies themselves remain dictated from outside. And so this was especially what I was finding in the context of Kenya, right, was that the state very much had the trappings, as we all know, of, you know, being internationally sovereign, the way in which the civil servants were talking about how they, you know, they also produced these policies. But really, when you when you went past the surface, you saw how a lot of it was this this kind of shift in the language to, you know, donors are not financial donors, right? They offer technical expertise, right? Or they're no longer donor and aid recipients, right? We're partners, they're development partners. What I'm also pointing to is how there's a lot of power in discourse, right? And there's a lot of power in the language and how the government, especially the Kenyan government, became invested in that language. Never mind all of the the clear and physical examples that illustrated the power differentials remained, right? But that for whatever reason, that that kind of allowed the Kenyan government to feel like it now was invested in reproducing this type of development. The other thing, I, if I can say, is also how prior to the, is, is I, I really want to talk about also the role of NAPAC, right? The New Economic Partnership for African Development, which came about around the same time that the World Bank and the IMF created this entire, this language of ownership. And if you put NAPAC in conversation with the Lagos Plan of Action from 1980, then you can see how this huge wave takes place across the African continent at the, in the early 2000s, which starts to kind of take responsibility for the previous decades of, um, of, of disenfranchisement of, and of ex- exploitation, right, that happened under structural adjustments. Comparing that to the Lagos Plan of Action, where these same kind of, where these different African leaders we're pointing to the international community, right? The role of international capital and the development industry for keeping the continent locked into this relation, this dependent relationship. And so that in order to change the material conditions across the continent, it required a restructuring of the international capitalist structures, right? Versus NAPAD very much adopting that language of it's internal to the continent, right? It is about governance and it is about the need to focus on economic growth by any means necessary. And so I think it's important that we also historicize how the Afri- the leaders on the continent have very much bought into the neoliberal ideology, right? And these neoliberal strategies for what's considered development, right, that are very much in line with what's coming out of the international development industry. Wow, that was so informative. And then I just, you know, so the cabral that (laughs) Taki is referring to is a a Milcar cabral and uh, Kwame Nkrumah, of course. And um, I think you're referencing neocolonialism, the highest age of imperialism, among other of his works. I just want to put that out there for the audience. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And from Cabral, I- I'm thinking about his writings in Unity and Struggle, specifically. 
Shifting gears a little bit, Takia, in your new work, you look at reproduction and family planning in Ghana, Senegal, and the U.S. South from the perspective of racial capitalism. Now, as you know, there are all sorts of terms for the intersections of basically capitalist exploitation or class antagonism and racialization. So we got racing, we got racing capitalism, which is the concept uh, or the conceptual framework that Michael uses. We got racialized capitalism, which I think is used by Nancy Fraser. We got racist capitalism. And then I have my own neologism, which is capitalist racism. So I guess, firstly, where do you fall in terms of this terminology? But Beyond that, how does this broad framework of racial capitalism help you to examine the, the dynamics you're interested in? And then relatedly, what do you hope to contribute to the study of racial capitalism broadly conceived? Yeah, thank you. That's, a, that's such a really big question. And I think it's, it's also an important one because there's been this proliferation right around racial capitalism in the past couple mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. years that makes the body, makes it a a very vast body of work that we're trying to put into conversation. And I also appreciate, so I really appreciated the talk that Michael gave recently on around his concept for the the book project that he's working on, on with race and capitalism. And so I think for me, though, because I'm thinking about this in two ways, one is this, this international Role, right? The international dimensions of race and capital or race and capitalism, but also within these unique contexts, right? So, and within the, within the, uh, in conversation with, with development and especially population development, right? So I draw on a, an amalgamation of figures. And I think this is similar to what you do as well, Sharice, and you, and your term, capitalist racism, right, that you kind of, that you put forward when you're drawing from people who may not specifically use that term, right, or may not specifically use racial capitalism, but effectively what they're pointing to, right, are these structures uh, in these different institutions of capitalism that create differentiations across labor, but also expropriate, exploit, and oppressed through different means, right? These uh, a specific body of people, right? And I think in your work, you're looking especially at more recently within the U.S., right? So thinking about how this relates to you, you talk about the structural location of blackness, right? So for me, in in the broader sense, right, I draw on Cedric Robinson, right, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Oliver Cromwell Cox, and hey, Cox, Cox, yes. Yes, the ultimate stand for Cox, and I will. I will give you credit. <laughs> I will give you credit because you have you have re- created a revival around Cox just in the past couple of months. But but I do. I think, and I I think you're you're spot on to bring him back into the conversation because he offers some of the most incisive and useful conversations and explanations of these concepts, right? That often get muddied and the way that people use them, especially in his work on caste, class, and race, right? But I also use Legasic and Hemsen, right? And so for me, I define, in, in the way that it's useful for how I'm thinking about it in respect to development, I define it as the process whereby people are racialized into populations based on a metric of, of labor utility expen- and expendability, 
that translates to social work and differential exposure to death and quality of life that correspond with the exigencies of national and global capitalism. Right. And so for well, that's good. That's good. I was going to say preach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason that this is important for me and especially drawing, I'm going to bring in Kruma in here again in conversation with Lugasic and Hemson, right, who were writing in the 70s. But they're really focused on the role of international capital and the way that it it comes in and reorganizes domestic labor. Right around these metrics of labor utility, expendability, and exposure to death and quality of life, right? And so we think about this when Nkrumah is dealing with the dam, right? The Volta Dam. And he's finding these issues with creating, with having a domestic bourgeoisie, essentially, that could invest in the project. And so Jamima Pierre talks about this in The Predicaments of Blackness as well. And what he ends up finding is that Inter- that, that as the inner he has to rely on international capital to fund the project and what happens though is that they import their own labor right and they exclude the domestic labor they exclude Ghanaians from being able to participate or to to actually generate any kind of wealth or any kind of material benefits from the project right but what happens again is that the society becomes organized around this project. So there's also this spatial dimension to racial capitalism that I think, you know, and builds taking from the critical geographers like Harvey Gilmore and also a good friend of mine at Oxford, Amber Murray and Dewa, talk about that there's also this spatial element to it. Similarly, Legasic and Henson do do something do the same type of work where they're talking about how British foreign capital has is restructuring South Africa's labor force, right, and these racialized dimensions that that require or that appease the white workers. And a lot of this, again, comes from South Africa at the time not having a domestic bourgeoisie to to kind of, you know, jump off a lot of the infrastructure projects or the development projects that it feels like it needs in order to start to, to jumpstart the economy, right? What the way that I conceive of this and how it relates to some of my work now is that this foreign direct investment is heavily promoted in international development circles, right? Uncritically, right? The World Bank promotes, and, and I believe it's over 80% of the conditionalities and the rec- policy recommendations that it makes in different African countries, foreign direct investment, right? Which is this hyper exposure to international capital and and it also depletes and and makes it difficult for domestic capital right for domestic industry to compete right while simultaneously create you know forcing the retrenchment of the state and getting rid of social measures social protections which include subsidizing right subsidizing domestic industry so that they could actually compete instead it ends, ends up essentially decimating any type of domestic competition. So I'm also curious about and interested in this project in conjunction with how this relates to reproduction is uh, how foreign direct investment as a tool for international development, which essentially is racial capital, right? The promotion of racial capitalism, the expansion of this project, of this process, but how this is also very much implicit and enacted through these uh, this seemingly benign language and these seemingly benign tools that grow out of 
economics, economic development, international development, political science, etc. I, I also think it's important to to add in this dimension of gender, right? And so here, in addition to the concept, and I think this is part of what Michael concept does, right? And conceiving of uh, race and capitalism, right, as this having this patriarchal, white supremacist and capitalist dimension is to include that in how we think about how we think about the process, right? If we understand as I believe quite a few scholars like, you know, Morgan and Sweeney have talked about that capitalism was incubated in the womb of the African mother, right? In the womb of the African woman, then it becomes difficult to, to, to interrogate and understand that process without linking it with reproduction and the, the role of the woman, right? And gender in these different iterations of racial capitalism. And so from here, I build on scholars like Selma James and Andaye and Angela Davis, Maria Mies, who argue that there's this critical component to the process of racial capitalism that is reproductive labor, right? The social elements that are indispensable aspects of supporting and contributing to the labor supply. So under racial capitalism, women's reproductive decisions are sutured to the needs of the economy, right? And we see this particularly in the fields of population development and the growing anxieties over decreased fertility rates for white populations in the Western countries. If I can quickly just interject one not really a footnote, one, one component of that within the U.S. is that a lot of us have talked about the degree to which Black women who were enslaved produced labor for a, the plantation capitalism that you have in the Western Hemisphere. But it's also been shown recently that slaves represented the enslaved people were the greatest source of capital in the United States, greater than factories, land, and finance capital combined, let's say, in 1860. So, so what black women were doing are not only producing surplus labor power, they're also producing the essential capital that is behind the growth of financial capital in both the United States and the United Kingdom. Yes, absolutely right. And so this is where I think scholars like Jennifer Morgan and Angela Davis are are instructive, right? And thinking about the role of the, the way in which African women, especially once they come to the U.S. and the and Jennifer Morgan looking at the U.S. and the Caribbean, right, have this double role of producing labor and being an actual and a part of the actual labor supply as well. And so, part of what the, what the project I'm doing is trying to grapple with is. But what does this look like on the other side of the Atlantic, right? And how do we put this, how do we put these two in conversation? Because, you know, there was a point in the US when it was cheaper to import Africans to the Americas than it was to encourage African women to have more babies, right? And we know it was, you know, the amount of time that would take for the nine months of gestation and then the postpartum period right, was decreasing, right, their ability to accumulate more capital, right? So it was cheaper to import. But once the ban on the slave trade took place, then there was a resurgence around increasing production, right? Increasing, and Dorothy Roberts talks about this a lot in Killing the Black Body, 
right? How this, how the 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 goading and the encouragement for Black women to reproduce, right, was very much tied to the ability to acquire labor, the modes of labor acquisition, right, and the value of labor as it related to the means of production at that particular time. And so when we start thinking about this under colonialism as well, right, there were different points at which, and Maria Mies talks about this in her book, Patriarchy and Accumulation on a World Scale, right, how at different points, the same thing was taking place with colonialism, where, you know, there were points when they were trying to goad and encourage indigenous women to increase their reproduction, right? And because there was a need for more labor, um, but then, which is, which is, you know, I guess a segue into some of the other things we'll talk about, but some of the responses to that were for women would go on birth strikes, right? And that, that had extreme consequences for the colonial administration and their ability to, again, acquire labor and then continue to extract, right? And in a mode that was creating enough profit, right? Yeah, I, I just love this conversation and just wanted to contribute the other types of economic functions that, so I talk about blackness as a sort of particular category of surplus value extraction. But if we think about the ways in which, you know, enslaved peoples and even after emancipations were rented out. So there's a, a rent function, right, that that these bodies serve. There's also the, I've talked about um, elsewhere in my work, the absorption of the risks of capital, right? So that there's a way in which all of the sort of externalization falls upon racial, not only racialized people, Black people in particular, but racialized nations. And so, you know, if you read Peter James Hudson's book, Bankers and Empire, for example, like when the dance of millions came crashing down, for example, it was like the Cuban people who absorbed that. And then there's particular types of anti-Black violence that accompanied that economic destitution. So all of that to say, it's not, there's all of these different types of economic functions that Black people generally, but Black women particularly, serve because of this intersection of racialization and capitalist exploitation. And so this is what we mean when we talk about racial capitalism or whatever other nomenclature we use. People act like it's very confusing. But this, these are the dynamics that we're pointing out when we use that terminology. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, there's, I think there's a tendency for people to say this was in the past, but you know, Larry Summers wrote a paper. He's the former president of Harvard, served in several democratic administrations about how we should, it's in the economic interest of both Africa and the United States to ship all the toxic waste to Africa. So, so the, the, there's the ways in which the combination of racialization, patriarchy, and, and, imperialism in the 21st century continue to get reproduced are profound and extraordinarily broad. Absolutely. Right. And so that's, I think, a lot of what my work is trying to do is understand how is this being reproduced, especially under the guise of international development, right, which is extremely pervasive on the continent. So and I'll give you an example. You know, in the U.S., most people don't think about their lives through the framework of sustainable development goals, right? We could care less. Most people couldn't even tell you what they were, let alone the millennium development goals. But in doing my fieldwork on the, just about everybody knew what the millennium development goals were. Just about everyone knew what the sustainable development goals were, right? And so, so part of what I'm, what I'm also trying to do is merge these conversations around 
racial capitalism, right, and how it is inherently the that is in the the specific project of development, right, at, at in all of its iterations and in these different um, at the, at the level of implementation, at the level of discourse, right, at the level of policy, it's so pervasive, but it's not read that way. Right. And so you have scholars like Kalpana Wilson, who wrote Race and Racism and Development, which was, I think, one of the especially more recently, one of the first kind of interrogations of how, you know, specifically engaging the language of the development industry. Right. We know that people have talked about this and made these critiques from other epistemological standpoints, right? And from other disciplinary standpoints, right? But when we're talking about from within the development industry, within the development community, there's very little focus on race and and very little critical analyses of capitalism and how these are conjoined. There's far more discussion around gender, right? And how to incorporate women into the economy as if that's not already happening through a variety of means right but how to incorporate them into formal markets right which goes back to the the kind of uh, what Angela Davis talks about right the the dialectic of oppression and liberation where there's this this assumption that you know in order to to be exploited right women have to move from this the 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 theoretical sphere of nature right into the formal labor market to effectively have their labor exploited in order to then participate and be a part of the kind of revolutionary processes that would take place afterwards. And so I, I in my own work, I kind of build off of Kianga Yamada Taylor's discussion of predatory inclusion, right? So the whole language of women's empowerment, especially under international development, very much smacks of this predatory inclusion, right? How do you go about bringing African women into the formal market with no qualifications around the ways in which the, the jobs and the market, the job markets that are being provided are highly precarious, right? They're highly contingent, right? And they do not allow for the types of freedom, except for under the liberal notions of freedom, right? That would lead to an alternative world or an alternative type of development or even an in a sense of individual empowerment, right? Let's, let's continue along these lines. What we've been talking about for the last few minutes addresses one that's one of the central problems in much of the racial capitalism literature, which is a U.S. and Western hemispheric focus. How does your work and that of other scholars' work, research in Africa, expand and trouble our understanding of the interaction between white supremacy and capitalism? What are some of the texts that you have found most useful in helping you to understand the intersections of racial capitalism, reproduction? and state policies of family planning? And what are some of the gaps you've identified in the existing literature? I think that there is a heavy U.S. and Well, I won't even just say U.S. There's a heavy focus on settler colonial nation states, right, within the literature. I do think that Bankers and Empire by Peter Hudson does kind of push those boundaries a little more by looking at the, the Caribbean and Latin America specifically, but in terms of the application of racial capitalism to non-settler colonial states, this is where I, I think there's there's a lot of room to contribute, right, to those conversations. So what does this look like in places where there is not an ostensible white other binary, right? And especially if we think about race as a structure of power, then how do we bring that, how do we understand what's taking place in Ghana, for example, 
where the northern part of the country has been effectively racialized as a labor reserve for the southern portions of the country? How do we think about the language of autochtony, right, that exists on the continent as a different type of, as a, as a form of racism, right, that's not particularly wedded to the somatic? And so, so my own work by looking at Ghana and Senegal and still using this, the, the theory of racial capitalism, is an attempt to kind of open up the conversation around what does this look like in places where the ruling class is not phenotypically white, but, but sits in this kind of, in, the, in a, the epistemological location of whiteness, right? And this is where we get into, again, Nkrumah, Cabral, and others, right? The critique of the native bourgeoisie, which is effectively their, their role. But so my, so my work is definitely trying to explore how do we apply this to the non-settler colonial state, especially if we say that racial capitalism is expansive, right? Because a lot of what's, what's being theorized doesn't specifically say this only applies to settler colonial states, right? These are broader theories that, and especially even like in Charisse's work, right, with, if we're thinking about Blackness and the category of Blackness as diasporic even, then how do we, how do we interrogate the application or the execution of racial capitalism in these different spaces? I just want to say that is so important, this point that you're making about racial capitalism beyond settler colonial societies, because that I always get this question. Well, what about, let us say, Scandinavia? Those are relatively racially homogenous societies. As In other words, those are basically white societies that don't have a large racialized population. How can we call them racial capitalists? And I think that to your point, I think that what you're pulling out really puts that question to rest. Although I also think it's a bad faith question, but mm-hmm. because we're talking about a capitalist world economy anyway, but, but I, but I think that that, that intervention is very important that you're talking about. Yeah. I think in the other intervention that I make, which comes to, or that I, I like to think of making it, which is very much rooted in why I use field work to, to unpack and try and answer these questions is around the role of agency and the responses to it. Right. And I, I also, as much as I want to be attentive to the nuances of the structures of racial capitalism within these different contexts and globally, I also want to center how women and communities are responding to and navigating it, right? Because I think there's, there's something important to be said for the kind of transnational solidarity that goes around responding to racial capitalism, right? Responding to women having their reproductive decisions sutured to the exigencies of national and global capitalism that can also be instructive for us in thinking about, well, you know, as much as we identify the problem, how how are we articulating solutions, right? How are people on the ground fomenting, navigating, and, and providing solutions to this structure, right? In ways that may not seem like they're, you know, revolutionary, but in this kind of, you know, uh, James C. Scott's weapons of the week type of way, they really are challenging these structures. And so I'll give you an example of something that's coming out of the work I'm doing now. And that's in Ghana, how I'm looking at how women are creating these myths about family planning that 
I, I'm, I'm again kind of theorizing in the same kind of way around like these, this wep- these weapons of the week and how it really challenges this kind of racial capitalist logic, right? Especially as it pertains to reproduction. And so, if in the the different health clinics, right? When I was doing field work in uh, Kumasi in Accra, Ghana, one of the things that kept coming up from, especially from the health workers, was like, um, you know. We, we would be able to increase the, the, our contraception prevalence rate or, and, you know, the usage of family planning if women would just stop spreading these myths, right? And I was like, well, you know, what do you mean by myths? And they're like, oh, they just say some of the wildest things, right? You know, an IUD can travel up to your brain and get stuck. Or if you use the Norplant or the Deprovera, it'll get lost in your arm or birth control makes you fat. Right. And so I'm hearing this about myths from four, five different health providers, reproductive health providers across two different cities that are not interrelated. Right. And talking to multiple health workers in these organizations and then sitting in on some of the counseling sessions with some of the women. Right. This thing about myths kept coming up. And so I started to explore this because it also was evident in a lot of the international development literature and policy responses to why, how there could be, how to increase the usage of family planning technologies in Ghana. And one of the biggest obstacles was ridding communities of these myths, right? Because family planning would empower women and family plan- getting them to to recognize how they need to you know increase or use modern family planning technologies would be a means of like emancipation and you know they could space out their births etc and so i started to kind to follow up on this trend but how once the communities would prom- continue to circulate and the women would circulate these myths it frustrated the health workers, right? To the extent that a lot of the health workers would stop going to those communities. And that doesn't mean that those communities didn't have access to the reproductive health care, right? Because they could still go, but it stopped the the health workers from constantly advocating and sensitizing and taking trips and, and all of these things to promote and push for family planning in these communities. And so the, the the dominant logic for understanding myths, especially from a demographic or a development or a kind of a liberal women's empowerment framework is that, well, myths are harmful because it shows that women don't understand their bodies or women don't understand reproductive health. But in alternate reading, especially if we're thinking about this in the context of you know, how I'm, how I'm thinking about racial capitalism and the problematics of development and population development is that these women are offering a counter myth to the myth of pop overpopulation, right? Overpopulation is a pervasive myth across Ghana, right? The notion that women are having too many children and that family planning is what's going to increase the economic productivity in the country and the reliance on women, right, as a in their bodies as a kind of technological response to increasing uh, GDP, right, increasing economic growth. And so there's a way in which we can read these, uh, you know, the women circulating these myths about family planning as a competing myth, right, these dueling myths that demonstrate a kind of agency and resistance to having their bodies and their reproductive decisions again, kind of sutured to what the national economy needs. 
That is just so incredibly interesting and illuminating the the sort of the use of myth as resistance. So in keeping, shifting gears a little bit, but in keeping with your focus on the continent, you recently co-wrote an article with one of your students, Kim Bakel, titled Predicting Black Death as Enterprise, um, that examines the mainstream media's discourse about COVID-19 in Africa, particularly their befuddlement, right, at the fact that the pandemic has not ravaged the continent in the ways they predicted. So can you say more about the impetus for that article and what you all, what, what you two sought to illuminate with that? And then also, um, how does that article relate to other themes in your work, like development, reproduction, and the position of Africa in the international community? Yeah, so it's funny. That was a, a my so Kim Bako is my is a senior and she's I'm her thesis advisor and she's just a phenomenal student who is doing field work and she's from Zimbabwe and she was doing field work in Zimbabwe when the pandemic happened and she started looking at COVID right because she's also she's a public health major and she had come back and we were just having a conversation about you know how she was going to move forward with her project. And I, somehow it came up about, you know, the she had mentioned like, yeah, and everybody's just, you know, so surprised that Africans aren't dying. And I said, yeah, isn't that astounding, right? But we all know that, you know, predicting Black death is an enterprise. We both were like, ooh, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting statement. Maybe we should write something about it. And, you know, we kind of let it sit for a while and we were like, you know, maybe we'll come back to it. But there's an there's an important critique there around public health in these different global and domestic industries that essentially start from the assumption that there is nothing inherently value about, valuable about Black life, right? Except for the ability to generate knowledge, right? And to produce knowledge about the lack of value that is inherent in Black life, right? And so we came back to the topic, especially once we noticed that it, it continued to change, right? It went from why aren't people dying to, well, here's why people, it's those same explanations that we gave in the beginning are the reasons that they're not, that people in Africa aren't dying. And so when we saw this kind of shift in the internet, in the, the media, uh, we were like, we have to act. We have to write something because this is, this is quintessentially what is wrong with, again, international development, global public health, even disciplinarily, right? And like political science, economics, is that it relies on this kind of scientific capitalism and this notion of objective science in order to advance these racist extractive and colonial notions of uh, of Africa and blackness in general, right? But it's often hid behind, you know, that that hiding it behind that language on one hand, using quantitative methods, right, to obscure the subjective the subjective aspects of quantitative analysis, right? But then also because it's gained a type of prominence, right, and a type of uncritical prominence within scientific communities, right, as everything that's being produced is valid, right, and is coming from, and is based on a set of assumptions that are not, in fact, racist. 
And so that's, that was the impetus for the article. And there was a lot of resonances with my, with my research in, in terms of how I think I'm often trying to shed light on the way in which accountability for quote unquote underdevelopment on the continent has been shifted to individuals and institutions on the continent and, and is constantly being directed away from the role of the international community, international capitalism, these new types of imperial relationships, right, that are often left out of the conversation and how those, all, those also rely on, again, the scientific capitalism, right? They are fortified by the academy, right? Walter Rodney said, the academic is the enemy of the people until proven otherwise. And we see that at every turn, when we think about how the knowledge that is produced about the continent is often coming out of the academy. And so it's not just, a, a, you know, this kind of like boogeyman, just the, the World Bank and IMF, who are also heavily staffed with economists and political scientists and, and academics, but, but also being critical about how they are rooted in a particularly racist and sexist epistemological foundation, right? That is very much anti-Black and anti-Africa. To follow up on what you just said, the disciplinary problems have been, well, the disciplines, particularly some of the social science disciplines have been, as Walter Rodney and you have, have said, part of the problem in the subordination of Black people and other colonized peoples. You're trained as a political science, as I am and many of our colleagues but you are currently in a Black Studies program at Davidson. What are some of the limitations of being in a political science department with an interest in Africa and in African people? What possibilities are opened up but also hampered by being in Black Studies? Can you also say a bit about the current relationship between African Studies and Black Studies? In some Black Studies departments I was a member of, the Africanists tended to be often more conservative and supporters of capitalism, particularly those that were grounded in the social sciences, such as economics and political science? Yes. So, you you know, being in political science, as you both know, <laughs> means that you have to navigate regularly a, you have to navigate regularly a kind of an unabashed pride in the racist, white supremacist origins of the discipline, right? And the kind of, you know, a, a doubling down on that, right? Like the, I think the political science tends to be especially proud of its, you know, hyper white, hyper heteronormative position, right? And its epistemological orientation towards knowledge production. That was extremely, that was extremely difficult for me to navigate, especially in grad school, because in undergrad, I went to Howard. So studying political science looked very different, right? We were reading Ralph Bunch and, you know, Elaine Locke. We were reading so many people who would otherwise not be read as within the, the canon of, of political science. And so when I went to grad school, I was just, you know, I was floored because I just did, I had no idea that the discipline was so violent. And I think a lot of this violence comes from the identity crisis that it has, right? In that it wants to be accepted as a 
in some respects is, you know, like the hard sciences, right, as producing this knowledge that is, you know, again, that is objective, that has persistent validity, right, that does, and that everything it, that comes out of the discipline is somehow uh, void of any type of normative commitments. When the reality is, it is, the, the discipline is so far behind in a lot of respects. Now, this is the dragging I'll do if you, <laughs> is I'll drag political <laughs> Drag them. Drag them. <laughs> no argument here. Yes, you know. And so I just found that even doing this, even as a Black woman doing international work, I was in some respects like a unicorn, right? I would, even when I would go to like the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, the, the majority of Black political scientists were Americanists, right? And they were using quantif- they were using quant, they were behave- you know, behavioral scientists. And so I just didn't necessarily fit in there. And then in the international political economy community and international relations, because I was doing field work, I also didn't completely fit in there because I wasn't doing a lot of high level theory, right? Or even, you know, meta level theory. I was trying to bridge the the some of the theory with the on the ground practice. And so, you know, I and I was also extremely interdisciplinary, right? I just didn't think that, you know, I I think about Lewis Gordon's language of disciplinary decadence, right? I didn't think that there was any one discipline that offered the tools or the solutions for fully grappling with the complex reality of nature on the ground, you know, what was taking place on the ground. And so Africana had always kind of felt like the place I would go if I could get out of political science, because I felt like there was enough room and a need for people working on political economy. And so I think to, to, to answer that, to answer one of those questions is like, the possibilities that were opened up for me is that through the one thing I would give political science, and I do this begrudgingly, is that I was very much trained in methods to the point where I became, I'm kind of like a methods geek. But, and so that was extremely, that was instructive and informative for how to think about research, how to do this work on the ground, how to navigate different time, different, you know, temporal and spatial markers, right, with what I was trying to do. In the way that, and Teresa and I have talked about this before, right? Like that, you know, also needs to be further cultivated and, re- and fortified within Black studies, right? The, a, a focus on like methods and methodological training and not even just methods, because I'll take it further up, right? Epistemological training, right? Like how do we think about and understand these different epistemologies, right? That actually inform our methodological orientations, but also what's rooted in that is the axiological questions, right? How do we think about what is valuable? What what type of data is value? What what aspects of what exists in reality are, you know, do we understand is valuable? Because that has deep consequences for what we can imagine is possible through our research, right? And so I think that the the combination there, and for me, because I have a political commitment to the liberation of all African pe- all people, but especially this particular project around the liberation of all Black and African people, because of the unique history, right, and the unique ways in which they were brought into, you know, European imperialism, 
is that those things combine for then what do I imagine as possible with my research, right? How do I design a research project that has those particular ends, right? So the ends always being the people and people never being the means to the end, which is where I think political science remains hung up. You know, as far as the the, the Black studies and, and Africanists, whoo, that's tough. There are certainly conversations, I would say healing and reconciliations that need to happen between those camps because there is a kind of hyper-conservatism, especially around, you know, some people who study the continent. But I think some of that also comes from the fact that a lot of Africanists were trained in these other disciplines, right? They were trained in economics, they were trained in sociology, they were trained in political science. But I don't get that same orientation from Africanists who were trained in Black studies, right? Because that is antithetical to the very nature of the discipline, right? Is to be conservative or have this kind of Black imperialist orientation towards the continent. And so I find that those things can't, are generally reconciled or irreconcilable based on one's disciplinary training. Thank you so much. This has been an extraordinary conversation. It's certainly been one of our best sessions ever. Do either of you have final thoughts you would like to share? Just quickly, I just want to thank Dr. Takia Harper-Shipman for being here and for bringing Africa into the question or the the sort of framework of racial capitalism, because it is something that, as you noted, Takia, is under, you know, underdeveloped. <laughs> words of Walter Rodney, you know, and, and that that needs to be more incorporated into our analysis. So I'm just grateful for this conversation and the, the wide range, your wide range to Kia. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Sharice. And thank you, Michael. This was an extremely, even for, even as I'm talking through things, I'm like, well, I need to write this down somewhere. <laughs> get them bars, get all them bars on wax. 